We continue our journey through the book of Romans. If you'll turn with me to the first chapter, we will be looking at verses 19 to 23. Give attention to this, the reading and the hearing of God's word. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. This is God's word. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Last week we saw that the greatest problem facing our lives is not ISIS or immigration reform or, not to be trivial, but even holiday shopping. We saw that the greatest problem we face is the justifiable, inescapable wrath and anger of God. We saw that God's anger, what theologians call and have already used his wrath, is not just mild displeasure, but his settled justifiable, overarching indignation over our unrighteousness and sin. Today, in verses 19 through 23, Paul gives us the reasons for his anger. First, there's the fact that we are without excuse because he has made himself clearly known to us. Then we have rejected and rebelled against that revelation and knowledge. And to make matters worse, we've rationalized and relabeled our actions. We actually get to the point where we call wrong right and evil good. But there is rescue, and that's my outline. First revelation. The first reason for God's anger against us addresses the theme that we walked through this morning in our special emphasis on our Lottie Moon offering. Namely, why is Christian missions necessary? Okay, certainly we know that some people walk in darkness and we have more light. We know that it's better to walk in light than in darkness, but is that all there is to Christian missions? Helping people see a little bit better and to stumble less. Don't those who walk in darkness without light have a legitimate excuse? A get-out-of-jail-free card from God's anger. Verse 20 addresses that problem directly. It says, in effect, God has made himself known and revealed to everyone. We are all responsible for our rebellion. It says God is angry at everyone, and we are without excuse because God has revealed himself to us, and we have willfully and consciously rejected him. Everyone. Listen to the verse. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made. Psalm 19 declares, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. And Acts 14 says, God has nowhere left himself without a witness. That means every living creature lives every waking moment of every waking day in the presence of constant reminders of God's majesty and of his power, his invisible qualities. Every bicyclist and hiker that travel by our church or climb Mount Tam or revel in the beauty of the Pacific and our county gaze upon the handiwork of God's glory. He is present. He reveals himself. He shows himself. He displays himself there. Now, commentators suggest, and I agree with them, that what Paul is doing here is really rehearsing the first four chapters of the book of Genesis. There, Adam walked freely in the cool of the day, in the presence of God. He was known to him, and they were together. God made himself known to Adam. That is his intention in the beginning. In Romans, God is known through what has been made. Nature is the art of God, and every artist reveals himself in his or her handiwork, their creation. The universe and everything in it is God's art. God spoke the world into being. So, in a real sense, then, the world is God's song. And in a song, there is design and intention and progression and purpose and meaning. Paul says in verse 19, God made himself evident to all humankind. The universe is a song or a poem about God in which he makes himself clear and present and we can see his power and might. Paul is saying if you look out of the natural world, you can see lots of evidence that God exists. Anselm and Aquinas, two church fathers, have a series of things that Gosh, in my youth, are probably called proofs, but have been morphed into arguments or pointers for the existence of God. There's a whole bevy of them. Let me name two. Many of you remember them from college. Cosmological argument, teleological argument. Kind of proud of yourself just to be able to remember them, aren't you? The cosmological argument says everything has a cause. There's a cause that holds me up and holds that up, and there's a cause for everything, but if the causes go back Infinitely, philosophers call it infinite regression. If there's a cause and a cause and a cause and a cause and it goes back infinitely, I can't stand here. There must sometime be an uncaused cause, an unmoved mover that stops everything. Cosmological argument. The teleological argument is similar to it, but let's say it together. Teleological. Teleological. Good work. It's the argument from design. The world looks like it's been put together by a designer. It's also called the fine-tuning design. There are billions and billions and billions of moving parts, all of which, sometimes within tolerances of a billionth of a billionth, that have to work together, that have to come together in the cosmos for what we see and what we have and what we are to be. It's fine-tuning. The world of intelligent design says it is irreducibly complex. There really is no way to explain it except by a designer. This popped into my mind. I wasn't planning to say this, but I 
remember John Glenn, the astronaut sitting atop the Apollo spacecraft, was asked by a reporter in my youth, uh, what does it feel like to sit up there amongst all those moving parts, those millions and millions of the complex instrument about to be blasted into space? And he says, well, I can't help thinking that every single one of the parts that I'm sitting on top of and depending on was awarded to the lowest bidder. <laughs> the argument of fine-tuning. Well, Stephen, there's a pushback to that. Stephen Hawking says uh, in his book, The History of the World, History of Time, well, maybe when the Big Bang happened, there were literally trillions of parallel universes, and we just happened to be in the one in which matter coalesces and there is organic life. Well, philosophers have pushed back on that, too, and said, well, what if, in fact, I mean, you can't disprove that kind of thing. What if we were at a firing range and uh, there were 100 marksmen six feet away, skilled marksmen, and they all fired at the same time, but at the same time, all 100 sneezed. And so all of them missed. And so the fine-tuning argument isn't absolutely provable. Uh, there is a pushback to that, too. One uh, J John Leslie philosopher says, isn't it, isn't it unreasonable to base your whole life on the idea that one in a trillion chance happened? But back to our text. God making himself available and present and known so that we are all without excuse. Thomas Schreiner, in his commentary on Romans, says uh, God has stitched into the fabric of the human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when viewing the created world. In point of fact, this leads us to a whole different domain, an instinctive recognition. I don't, I frankly know no one who has been won to Christ by the cosmological or teleological arguments. They're absent from the Bible. The Bible doesn't make arguments. We simply begin in the atmosphere of God wherever we go. You, where can I go to flee from your presence? The text doesn't say you were there. It just says you. God is the foundation, the fabric of everything in Scripture. And uh, perhaps pre-evangelism, we can, we can clear the ground and get some attention, but there's something Schreiner suggests and this text suggests that is intuitive, that is innate, that is in us, that drives us to, a, to recognize that there's a deep reality that has claim over our lives. Um, Ann Wilson was one of those British skeptics uh, that I love when they convert. He was a literary critic. He had written books debunking Christianity. But in 2009, on Easter Sunday, he said, I am a Christian. And he goes on and basically says, as a matter of fact, it's materialistic atheism that is not merely an arid creed, but is totally irrational. Materialist atheism says that we're just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism or poetry if we are simply animated pieces of meat. It's the resurrection which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined. That's the ultimate key 
to who we are. Anybody who says, this is unjust, or this is unjust, that's your opinion, doesn't understand the logic and the argument of Romans 1. God is saying, I came to realize that what we're all doing is living as if there is a God because we know there is a God, but we won't admit it. That's saying, Wilson, sorry. God makes himself, reveals himself. He's present to us. Second movement of the text, though, is we rebel against it. We reject it. We suppress the truth. So God's anger is because we turn away from his truth. We know the truth and we turn away. According to verse 21, the reason we repress and suppress the knowledge of the true God is that, quote, although we knew God, they never glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. What an amazing verse on Thanksgiving Sunday. According to this text, Lack of thanksgiving is at the root and source and key of all the problems in the world, all the evil, all the misery, all the suffering. They all stem, in some real sense, from our refusal to give thanks. How could that be? Well, we hate the idea that we are utterly dependent on someone else. In... uh, C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, he retells the story of the king, really the fall of Adam and Eve, and he reinvisits it in the form of a king and queen. And the, uh, the admonition is given to the queen, not that she can't eat it through the vine, but Paralandra is a world of floating planets like carpets. And there is only one land that is the fixed land, it stays fixed. But all the other islands rise and fall with the swell of the seas. You might be on a mountain one time and a valley the next. You you can't be secure in what you choose the world to be. It always comes from the hand of Maheldel. It comes from beyond. So the admonition in that story is you can go anywhere on the planet except the fixed land. And we rebel against that because we want control of our lives. We want to... Don't admit that our lives are dependent on another. We want to keep possession of them ourselves. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Every act of goodness and wisdom and beauty, no matter who does it, is a gift from God. And everybody does that. Now, when they know God, we turned our back on God. So, men and women see God. We see the truth of God. And we run because we don't want to be exposed. I'm very appreciative of one philosopher who makes this honest confession. He says, I don't believe in God because I don't want to. I'm afraid to. Uh, He writes, I fear religion. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear. I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I'm curious whether there's anyone who could genuinely be indifferent as to whether there is a God. Anyone who, whatever his actual belief doesn't particularly want either one of those answers, there to be a God or not, is wrong. 
It's exactly what Paul is saying. We have an intuitive awareness that we rebel against. We see the power of God and the divinity of God is on display. Thirdly, not only do we have a revelation of him, and uh, not only do we reject it, but we rationalize our decisions about it. Listen to verse 22. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. People have heard the truth, people have rejected truth, and now they affirm the darkness is true. The worst error and the worst sin is when we call wrong right and dark light. We've totally lost touch with reality. Like Pilate saying to Jesus, what is truth? That's our character as lost people. We're utterly unable to discern what is right. We don't know. And we declare upside down as right. And that brings us to two more movements. We'll have to look at this one the next time we are in the book of Romans. But uh, it's what one commentator calls the dark exchanges. And there are three of them. We exchange the glory of God for images. We exchange natural relations for unnatural relations. We exchange truth for lies. It's a dark exchange. Next week, uh, we're going to celebrate the beginning of Advent, the first Sunday in preparation for Christmas. And the whole message of the Christmas miracle is based upon the fact that we understand how truly and honestly guilty we are before God. We have to go there to understand the beauty of the Christmas story. Romans 1 does that for us. Before we can understand the grace of God, we have to understand our predicament before God. Before we can understand how loving God is and how forgiving God is and how gracious God is and how merciful God is, we have to understand how guilty and undeserving we are. Listen again to verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. The first of the great commandments is, Have no other gods before me and make no graven images of me. We make gods to take God's place. That's our great sin. And the difference between the gods we make and the God who has made us is the ones we can carry around and the other carries us. We are inveterate worshipers. The text doesn't say worship or not worship. We don't have that choice. We will worship something. We will worship our houses or clothes or bodies or successes or money or false gods Religiously, or our status, or our position, or our health. We have idols ad infinitum, ad nauseum. But we don't worship the living God, and that is why God has given us up. One more thing. It's not explicitly in this text, but it impacts this text, that it comes into this text. God has provided a gospel. He has provided a rescue. <clears throat> We don't know everything about God in nature. We know of his might and grandeur and power. But we don't know of his grace. We don't know of his goodness. And we don't know of his love. One of my favorite authors of all time is Pulitzer Prize winning author Annie Dillard. 
If you haven't read her Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, do so. She goes to the mountains of Virginia to get away and to seek God in nature. And she writes, I thought by getting back to nature, I thought I'd become humanized by watching nature. And the more I see it, the more I realize I'm being dehumanized. Nature is red in tooth and claw. She says, you can't look at nature and know that God is a God of love. Neither can you in all the world religions. Buddhism doesn't believe in a God who is personal. Neither does Hinduism. Neither does Islam. Muslims will say that God is capable of being merciful, though we don't know when or why or to whom. But if we speak to them that the ideas of the Bible tell us that God can be like a spouse or a lover or our father or our friend. Muslims will say back that that is disrespectful. We would never talk about God that way. And here's the irony. All sorts of people in Marin say, I can't believe in the God of the Bible because he's a God of judgment and he comes down on people. I believe in a God of love. And she says, where did you get the idea of a God of love? By looking at nature? No. By looking at other world religions? No. There is only one source of the idea that God is a God of absolute love and mercy and tenderness and rescue. Dorothy Sayers is one of the first women that graduated from Oxford. She was a mystery writer. And she has written a wonderful set of uh, Mystery stories about Peter Wimsey, who is an aristocrat and a sleuth and who goes around solving mysteries, and he's a magnificent fellow, and he's single, and he's lonely. And all of a sudden, a woman appears in the novels, Harriet Vane, who's a graduate of Oxford, who writes mystery novels, and Harriet and Peter fall in love, and they marry. What many people realized, looking back, is that Dorothy Sayers had fallen in love with her character, Peter. And she saw his loneliness, and so she wrote herself into the story. As sentimental and romantic as that seems to be, that is exactly the story of the Bible. God created his characters and looked at us in our rebellion and lostness and loneliness and willfulness, and he wrote himself into the story. And he went to the cross and died for us. And when you begin to see that and know that and live out of that, you will begin to know God. Don't exchange that God for anything but exchange everything for him. Living and holy God, your word has taken us to important places. We ask your forgiveness for our waywardness and rebellion, and we will eternally praise you for your rescue and love. Father, we may, may we live out of that love and we, may we show that love to others in all that we are and all that we do and all that we are together. In Jesus' name.